Hello and welcome to this month's Thorax podcast. I'm Ongshu Bhomik and I have with me Professor Visha Venjiha, the Editor-in-Chief of Thorax. Hello, Visha. Um, hello to all our readers. Today we're going to talk about some of the important papers that have been published in this month's issue of Thorax. And then we're going to talk a little bit about trial registration. So, Visha, we've uh, selected a few papers that are going to be published this month. The first paper that we're discussing is by Osman and colleagues and is a study of high-frequency chest wall oscillation compared to standard airway clearance in cystic fibrosis patients. Visha, what are your thoughts about this study? Well, I, I chose this as one of the airways because it is fairly rare to have a trial performed of a physiotherapy technique, of a non-pharmacological technique. And as you know, airway clearance is one of the most troublesome components of the treatment of cystic fibrosis. In the UK, um, what is used is the active cycle of breathing techniques, though in other countries, especially in the USA, there has been a vogue for use of adjuncts to physiotherapy. And these, one of them is, as we've heard in your introduction, high-frequency chest wall oscillation. This is a costly technique, and as um, Judy Bradley um says in the excellent editorial that I really commend to everybody to read, the cost of the high-frequency chest wall oscillation known as the VEST is £8,000. So we do need to evaluate carefully um, this treatment. Um, what the study involved was actually a four-day randomised crossover design I don't think this is ideal, but I think we need to look at this study as a pilot study from where a larger multi-centre and long-term study will be eventually developed. So patients receive the high-frequency chest wall oscillation on days one and three and their usual active cycle technique on days two and four. The results were surprising in that patients who had the um, usual active cycle technique, in fact, expectorated more sputum than patients who had the high-frequency chest wall um, oscillation. So the conclusion of this study is that high-frequency chest wall oscillation is not beneficial. Now, there have been demands from the CF community for this treatment, and my own view is that this is interesting, but I would regard it as a short term study that now allows you to power a large multi-centre study. I suppose then that the next question will be what will happen if these techniques are used in more long-term real-life situations? Well, I think this is very interesting. Of course, the um, active cycle techniques, especially if physiotherapists are involved, do cost money. At the same time, the vest is also expensive. So I think it would be very useful to have a, f a study, an adequately powered study in the long term. And here we must be talking about six months to a year with a good health economic analysis. And in Judy Bradley's editorial, I think she does mention that there is some activity on this front.
That's very useful to know. And I suppose my thoughts are that perhaps uh, these techniques also ought to be studied in other diseases such as non-CF bronchiectasis and perhaps even COPD where sputum clearance is a big problem for some patients. Also, I completely agree with you. And I think particularly my experience in COPD is we're seeing some patients with particularly troublesome sputum reduction that we try the usual therapies, we then even try mucolytics, and they still complain of sputum production. And I think these patients perhaps would benefit from such techniques. I agree that would be a very interesting study to do in the future. Indeed. Thank you. The next paper that we're going to discuss is by Eisner and colleagues, and this looks at the influence of anxiety on health outcomes in COPD. So, Visha, tell us why you selected this paper for your airwaves. Well, as we know that COPD is a very important condition associated with much morbidity and mortality, yet I think psychological factors have not been given the prominence that they could have um, been given um, in a number of guidelines and in strategy documents. Um, having said that, there has been some recent information on depression in COPD. In my own group, in fact, um, I wrote a paper with um, Jenny Quintus, first author, showing that depression has an important factor in exacerbation frequency. Now, this paper is on anxiety, and ang there is much less information on anxiety, and where there is information, it tends to come from small studies. So, this is data from um, California, from San Francisco, from Mark Eisner's group, studying a flow cohort together, which is a COPD cohort, together with a control group. Well, as expected, patients with COPD show anxiety, and this is related to poorer healthcare outcomes. They also show a relationship between anxiety and risk of COPD exacerbation, though exacerbations were only defined on the basis of emergency room admissions or hospitalization. So we have no information on community-treated exacerbations, nor on exacerbations just treated, let's say, with steroids or antibiotics. However, the relationship between COPD severity and anxiety is somewhat complex. That's right. And there's a, a, a section in the results here where they look at the effect of uh, anxiety on COPD exacerbations, taking into account the Bode index. And they found that the effect estimates decreased and became statistically non-significant once the Bode index was taken into account. Um, presumably, this reflects on the complex interplay between severity, anxiety and outcome measures like uh, exacerbations and hospitalizations. Yes, that's right. What is actually missing in this paper is analysis of arterial oxygenation and anxiety in COPD. And many years ago, in collaboration with Paul Jones, we wrote a paper showing that hospital anxiety and depression scores, as used in this paper, were related to arterial PO2. And it's possible that arterial PO2 is actually the co-founder and affects the relationship between anxiety and disease severity. That's very interesting. So this paper does raise an important issue uh, regarding the role of anxiety in d disease severity. And perhaps we will be seeing further studies on this matter in future. 
The final paper we're going to talk about today is by Conway Morris and colleagues, and this looks at the diagnostic importance of pulmonary interleukin-1 beta and interleukin-8 in ventilator-associated pneumonia. Um, this is a bit more scientific. Uh, Visha, can you tell us uh, why you selected this paper and uh, what the importance of this study is? Well, I chose this paper because the diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia at the moment is very topical. We know that once a patient um, develops ventilator-associated pneumonia, mortality is high. There is also considerable antibiotic prescribing in the intensive care unit. And I think there's a wish in view of problems with resistance to reduce this. So if we can more accurately diagnose ventilator-associated pneumonia, particularly where there is and there is not a bacterial cause, that would be a step forward. In this um, month's thorax, we have a paper from Andrew Morris, this is from Edinburgh, together with an editorial written from Belfast, actually discussing the results. And what was done in this study was that two university hospital intensive care units took part, that's 73 patients, where there was a clinical diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia. Patients were then assessed bacteriologically, and what is interesting, only 24% of those patients actually had clinical evidence of infection, which was more than 10 to the 4 colony-forming units. Now, my view on this would be that perhaps infection was slightly higher. Just because they didn't get the bacteria out doesn't actually mean there wasn't an infection. And if so this is one of the, the, I think, major limitations. But then they went on and they actually looked at bronchalveolar lavage. In fact, the same group had done a previous paper showing that the use of BAL in the management of ventilator-associated pneumonia was actually very beneficial. Yeah. And they now show that um, BAL cytokine markers can actually help in the diagnosis. Now, BAL, you can get the results back on cytokines in four hours as opposed to bacteriology, which takes longer. Having said that, in the future, we will have better diagnostic bacteriological tests. Do you think that the use of BAL in this situation might be a problem in itself? Um, I, I, I think we need to do much more work on this. I think a two out of all the marker studies, two markers in this study actually showed some benefit. So the conclusions are if your interleukin as IL-1 beta is low, then you're unlikely to have a bacterial infection. However, if your IL-8 is very high, then you are likely to have an infection. The problem with IL-8 is, as we all know, it's a very variable marker of neutrophilic inflammation. So my own view is that this is a good approach that um, BAL is a difficult technique to do, to standardise. But um, with protocols, this could be performed. My own view is that we need some more specific bacterial markers. Yes. And um, there's a, a paper in uh, the most recent issue of The Lancet which looks at another marker, uh, procalcitonin. What do you think of that study? Well, procalcitonin is very interesting, is that um, there have been papers... Um, on procalcitonin, which is a fairly specific marker of bacterial infection. And the interest in COPD was that could this, in fact, predict or 
point us to the need for antibiotics and an exacerbation of COPD. And studies um, from Switzerland have shown that you can actually reduce antibiotics, yet not affect outcomes. So this was actually another paper performed in intensive care units, the ProRata trial published in The Lancet on February the 6th. And here they used procalcitonins. And the bottom line was that mortality was not affected using a procalcitonin um, marker technique. But they managed to reduce the number of days that patients were treated with antibiotics. So this may be a way forward. The problem with procalcitonin is that you do need special equipment to measure it. So it's not widely yet available. But I think the idea is right. Which marker we eventually use, I think, is still um, to be found. But I think in the future, diagnosis of bacterial infection will become much speedier. And that is particularly important, I think, when we consider the high rate of bacterial resistance and antibiotic-associated complications that we see. So this is something that we really look forward to. So those are the airwaves for this month. Now, I'd like to ask you something about clinical trial registration and the importance this has for prospective researchers and people who are wanting to publish their research in journals like Thorax. Some years ago, mainly led by the major general journals, there has been a call for all investigators and researchers who are first doing randomized clinical trials to register their trials. The reason to register a trial is that then the primary and the secondary outcomes are absolutely fixed. So that there is no issue as to what the eventual outcomes and analysis of the trials will be. The other reason to register a trial is that in the public domain, we have lists and registers of all trials. As we know, a number of trials had negative results and were never published. So this is important then, both for, for example, pharmaceutical companies who want to prove that their results are sound and not biased and also for the patients who will ultimately benefit from these? Well, absolutely. Now, there is a website, which is www.clinicaltrials.gov, that it is very easy to register a trial. It probably takes about um, 30 minutes and you're asked for some very basic information about the trial, um, how many patients you you intend to um, recruit, what the primary and the secondary outcomes are. We recommend that everybody who is doing or organising a clinical trial should actually register this on clinicaltrials.gov. In addition, um, those doing cohort studies should probably register them also, as I think in the future this may be a requirement, in fact, for all studies. In that case, what happens to those studies which have already started? And perhaps um, we, we, we know that there are some long-term cohort studies going on which haven't already been registered. What should the trials organisers do? I think if if a trial comes onto our desks which has not been registered, we'll want a very good reason that this is not registered. In fact, registration's been going on for now for probably up to four to five years. So I think there's no excuse for any trial. I assume there may be some trials which which are going on for 10, 20 years. In that case, um, these 
should have been registered during their progress. Now, if somebody really hasn't registered a trial and it's too late, then I think they need to write to the editors um, explaining exactly why this trial was not registered. But I think there's been a lot of publicity about this and everybody should have the opportunity to register their trials by now. So once a trial has been registered and performed appropriately, what sort of factors should the authors take into account when publishing such a trial? Well, in publishing a a trial, one does need to follow the guidelines for publications of trials. And for instance, it is always important to have a figure with a trial profile. That shows you exactly how many patients were screened, how many were randomised, and what happened to dropouts. Everybody has dropouts in trials, and it they need to be accounted for. We then need to know exactly what the randomization processes were and how the groups were allocated. Um, We then need to know exactly how the analysis was performed. In most cases, this will be on an intention to treat basis, but occasionally a per protocol design uh, may be used. And if both techniques are used, it is very important to be clear as to exactly how this is done. Then the results need to be carefully um, presented. Of course, we cannot often have too many tables and figures, but there's a lot of room in the online Thorax website, in the online supplement, where additional data can be deposited. Well, that's very useful information for prospective authors and investigators. Thank you very much, Visha, for that. Well, that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. You can find all the papers we've discussed today on the Thorax website at thorax.bmj.com and further information about how to submit your manuscripts to the journal on the same website. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.